Hi there, I'm Jake Humphrey and you're listening to High Performance, the podcast that reminds you that it's within. Your ambition, your purpose, your story are all there. We just help unlock it by turning the lived experiences of the planet's highest performers into your life lessons. And I'm excited to say this is the first of a special series we've created with our amazing friends at Whoop, the wearable health and fitness coach that helps you sleep better, train smarter and recover faster. So over the next few weeks, we're going to speak to world-leading experts with great knowledge, vast experience and clear advice in areas that could directly change the game for you and the life that you live. Here's what's coming up on today's special high-performance podcast in partnership with Whoop. Many of the conditions that people die of in the UK and also across the world, especially in the Western world now, are kind of chronic lifestyle related diseases that do have a component that is preventable. It's heart disease, cancer, stroke. These are the conditions that are at the top of the biggest killers in the world. And these are all the things that we can prevent if we get them at an early stage and if we intervene early. Women who feel supported in their relationships are less likely to experience PMS symptoms. So if your partner is, you know, going through that just make sure she feels really supported maybe take the bins out and just and offer to cook and um that will that will help her feel a bit more supported and a bit more able to cope with these kind of swings and hormones while you can lose weight whilst doing fasting it's basically down to a calorie deficit and um yeah, there's no research to say that it's any better than a standard diet where you eat and don't fast and still have the same amount of calories. So when we compare them like for like, there's no difference in terms of weight loss. Yeah, this is a cool episode, you know. So today we welcome Dr. Hazel Wallace to High Performance. She's the founder of The Food Medic. She's a medical doctor. She's a best-selling author and crucially a qualified nutritionist. Now, we know that food isn't just fuel. It's your energy source. It's what your body regenerates itself from. And I think the most important point is that it's what you have control over every single day. It represents your chance to make world-class decisions every single time you put something in your mouth. So I hope that today is really helpful for you in terms of how you eat, when you eat, what you eat, and why you eat. And it just makes you a bit more mindful about what you're putting in your body. Um, I also hope that you love this series. We've got some incredible guests coming up. So thank you so much to Whoop for partnering with us on this. Look, I love and I use Whoop daily. It lets me know the quality and impact of my sleep. It tells me if I need to adapt my training. It helps me live a lot smarter. It's backed by MDs, PhDs and MVPs. And if you're interested in improving your health, then you can go to join dot whoop.com forward slash hpp for a 20 percent discount this festive season that's join dot whoop.com forward slash hpp to get a 20 percent discount from the wearable tech brand whoop that we think is absolutely fantastic right let's get to it then in partnership with whoop let's help you live better it's time for the latest episode of the high performance podcast Well, Dr. Hazel Wallace, welcome to High Performance. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. So let's start with the traditional question, the way we begin all these interviews. What is your definition of high performance? For me, it's about being able to do everything in your life that you love. So when I approach nutrition and movement, 
I'm always approaching it from the mindset that what is this going to allow me to do at my best ability in the future and allow me to live my life at the fullest, which is why I think it's like a really positive way to approach performance and mindset is how can I make the most of my life? Okay, well, let's get straight into the good stuff then, because people will have come to this episode for it to have an impact on their lives. What is the thing that works for you and that you do or the things that allow you to live your life to the fullest? I think for me, it's the kind of making sure I'm getting my core fundamentals every day. So daily movement, making sure I'm fueling right. So three balanced meals a day, um, making sure I'm sleeping and getting good quality and quantity of sleep and also looking after my mental health. So I see them as my four pillars of health. And although I don't get it perfect every time and I don't expect people to get it perfect every time, I think if you're getting it 80% of the time, then that's good enough because it's what we do most of the time that matters the most. Can I ask you then, because they're fascinating areas, and I think for people listening to this, that they have obviously worked for you, Hazel, given that you are, in my definition, a polymath. So I'm interested in your own background, if you'd share that with, with our listeners, because there's a couple of areas that you've specialised in, and I'm interested in your journey as to, uh, that you could share with, with us and with the listeners. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so it really goes all the way back to when I was a teenager. Um, I grew up in Ireland, if people can't pick up from the accent. And uh, at the age of 14, my father passed away from having a stroke, which happened quite quickly. Um, it wasn't expected and it rocked my world and changed kind of my path forevermore. And it was around that time I decided I wanted to go into medicine. And previously I thought I would do something in accountancy or business. And I sat as kind of on my path into medicine, moved to Wales, studied um, my degree. And strokes and heart disease are very much related to our lifestyle. So nutrition, how much activity we do, the stress we're under. And I guess part of me thought I would learn loads about this and I would be able to prevent future strokes happening to other people's fathers. And while we were paying a lot of lip service to things like nutrition is important for X, Y, and Z, we weren't learning the practical ways of applying it to a patient. And so I started a blog 10 years ago now called The Food Medic, and it gained a lot of interest because I was a medical student. I was talking about nutrition. I was trying to apply it to how it can enhance human health and prevent us getting to the point where we needed to see a doctor or go to the hospital. And so over those years, I qualified as a doctor, started working in London, working in a traditional kind of capacity in that I was seeing patients in a&E in the acute department, um, cancer department, surgery. So I was doing all of those things, but running nutrition and my blog alongside it. And after a couple of years, I decided to actually go back and study a master's in clinical nutrition so that I could bring it all full circle. And COVID happened. And then I was a COVID doctor for the last two years. And during that time, I wrote my third book, which is called The Female Factor. And that's slightly different to nutrition in that I'm diving more into the sex differences when it comes to nutrition and movement and sleep and mood and those four pillars I discussed before. 
and 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 now that's kind of my primary focus so the food medic is quite a big platform i've got three books a podcast um big social media following but the core kind of purpose is always getting out educational content and bridging that gap between mainstream medicine and lifestyle and nutrition so that's me in a nutshell so hazel like if there was one message that you would want people to know and to take away and to understand, given this, that I'm interested from a couple of demographics. One for those of us outside the medical community, what we like, what you would want to convey. But equally, I'm interested in, given that you went down that route of going into medicine and then almost coming out of it and then pursuing it from a nutritional point of view. What would you want to, the medical community to know and understand based on your journey? I think when I first got interested in nutrition, I felt deep frustration with the medical curriculum because I just felt like, why aren't we talking about this? This is a huge gap in our research and knowledge. And if we're supposed to be helping people and prevent them from getting sick, then we can't just have a solution for when they do get sick. But having gone through the process of doing a master's in nutrition, which is a very different science, to medicine, I realized that it's not possible or practical to wedge that into a medical school curriculum. And I don't think the solution is to like retrain all our doctors to be nutritionists because we have dietitians and nutritionists, but I don't think we have that link. We don't have that easy link um, unless you're in hospital and you need um, dietetic advice when it comes to specific conditions, but that's quite niche. Like you can't go to your GP and, and ask for nutritional support to see a dietitian. We just don't have that available. But what if we did? And what difference would that make to people? And how many other, how many more people's lives will we save or prevent them from going on medication or being debilitated from a condition? And so I just think like it's, it's more about restructuring the healthcare system and putting an emphasis on education and and movement and lifestyle and nutrition and all of these core things that we know make massive impacts to people's health, not just now, but in the future. Because that reminds me of a conversation we had with uh, Dr. Rongan Chatterjee on this podcast, where, where he spoke about a frustration that he had in the medical community, that he felt that a lot of the problems he was seeing at that at the cause element in his surgery could have been dealt with upstream by lifestyle changes rather than having to wait for medication or the pharmaceutical industry to catch up with it. So given that you sit in that fascinating sweet spot between medicine and nutrition, how much of the medical problems did you see when you were a doctor that could have been solved by better nutrition and, um, and diet? Don't get me wrong, I would say that majority of the things that I was seeing, uh, I was a hospital-based doctor, so not a general practitioner, which is in the community. Majority of things I was seeing were end-stage conditions where people did need intense medical plus or minus surgical intervention. Um, but what I do think we are missing is in that community primary care setting. So when people first see their GP, that's when they first start having symptoms and things start going wrong. And that's our opportunity. That's our window of opportunity to, to prevent things from happening. But many of the conditions that people die of in the UK and also across the world, especially in the Western world now, are kind of chronic 
lifestyle related diseases that do have a component that is preventable. And what I mean by that is they're linked to things in our life that are modifiable, whether that's our diet, whether that is um, how much activity we do, the sleep that we're under, stress, smoking, alcohol. You know, if we go back 20 years ago, we had other conditions that were infectious diseases that were an issue like HIV. That's no longer an issue because we have medication to treat that. Now it's heart disease, cancer, stroke. These are the conditions that are at the top of the biggest killers in the world. And these are all the things that we can prevent if we get them at an early stage and if we intervene early. Okay, well, let's start talking then for our audience about practical things they can be doing when it comes to intervening. I had a a blood test a while ago and I try and do everything I can to stay as fit as I can. And the, the, the age that they gave me from looking at my cells and all these things on this modern, you know, new test, whether we should believe it or not, who knows, was not as low as I thought. And they said it it was because of the amount of stress in my life. And I know when I'm stressed because I don't sleep well. So I'd like to talk about sleep. First of all, what should we all be thinking about nutritionally? when it comes to improving our sleep which you know anyone that wears a whoop band will know that is your recovery is the bedrock of everything yeah i think this is really a really interesting area of research that's just beginning to emerge i talk about this a lot in my new book so i dived into it and what i wanted to understand is what are the foods that can support sleep and realize that that is too much of a reductionist way of thinking. There are not foods that we can eat that's going to give us the best sleep or green recovery on a whoop band. But what we are understanding is that meal timing is really important when it comes to sleep quality and also sleep quantity, but also our um, kind of metabolism and our health markers. And this area of research is called chrononutrition. And it's about like matching up our nutrition with our internal clock or circadian rhythm. And just like light and dark are cues for our circadian rhythm to tell us when it's time to go to sleep and wake up, when we eat is also a cue to our body when it's nighttime and when it's daytime. And so if you're eating late or into the biological night, so when it's dark outside, our body isn't primed to take on nutrients at that time. And that's not just going to disrupt your sleep. So you'll still be digesting when you're trying to go to sleep and that's going to disrupt your sleep quality. It also can affect things like your glucose levels and the fats in your blood, which over time, if we're doing this consistently, can have huge knock-on effects. It can increase the risk of type 2 diabetes, heart disease, and all these metabolic conditions in the long run. So I think what I'm saying is it's less about what individuals foods are eating and more about the timing of meals when it comes to sleep and also overall health and you know there's a lot of advice coming out about time restricted feeding or different types of fasting protocols and i don't think everyone needs to do them i also don't think they're suitable for everyone but what i would say is try to have your main meals when it's light outside and try not to be having a big meal after 6 p.m into the night i come at this then from a a full-time working parent so I get the Mm. kids from school about half past four (laughs) basically I'm picking them up in the dark at the moment so how do sort of busy working people you know most people let's be honest are getting home from work seven or eight o'clock in the evening it sounds like great advice practically employing that in our lives is the challenge isn't it yeah absolutely and I completely agree and 
Um, it's something that we can't adhere to all the time. And if you're coming home late from work or you're out for a late dinner, then you kind of have to accept that that's just what you're going to do. And I think thinking about our relationships is also really important for health. Um, what I would say is if it's something that you're consistently doing because of your shift pattern or because of childcare or anything else like that, it might be wiser to have a larger meal at lunchtime and have a smaller meal then later in the evening when you're coming home and thinking about foods that aren't going to keep you up at night. So going for foods that are not kind of high in sugar. So opting for complex carbohydrates that are high in fiber, like whole grains, legumes, pulses, um, lean sources of protein and slightly lower in fat. And when it comes to our meals, like I said, the most important thing is that you're getting your nutrients across the day and it's what you're doing most of the time. So if this is something that happens once in a blue moon, then that's fine. But if it's happening consistently, then just try to shift your meal times or your bigger meals earlier in the day. And what do you do for someone like me and my wife who we'll eat with the kids about half mm. five, six o'clock, put them to bed all good, sit on the sofa. And then like I see the crisps about 9 p.m. She sees the Cadbury's chocolate fingers about five past nine. And at 10 o'clock, we're going to bed going, why did I do that? Uh, is that because I'm not, con or we're not consuming enough calories during the day and we're a bit deficient or is it that it's a habit we've got into because, listen, we all like to pretend we're high performance. We've all, <laughs> we've all got our flaws and people listening to this may well do the same. What do you think? I think it could be a combination of both. Um, you know, one of the reasons that people tend to snack late at night is because it's habit, um, because of boredom and you're watching TV and you tend to associate watching TV with having snacks, but also because of the nutrients that you're having across the day. So not just in your last meal, it might be that in that day, you didn't actually consume enough calories or enough nutrient dense meals. And so your body later in the day is like, I'm, I, you know, I need to catch up. Going to bed hungry can also disrupt your sleep. So we don't want to do that either. But I would advise focusing on your meals in the day and making sure you're making them as nutrient dense um, so that they're supporting you and that later in the day, you're not having that dip in blood sugar and you're not requiring crisps or chocolates to keep you going. But it can be difficult to break a habit. I think um, if you are doing it with someone like your wife and you both agree that you're going to break this habit or you're going to maybe have something just closely after your last meal so it's not later into the evening and so you still get something sweet but you're not disrupting your sleep and you're not affecting your health later in the night can i go after one of the other pillars and hazel that i'm intrigued about because focus is something that i need help with you know in our increasingly busy world the ability just to be able to zero in and go deep with focus is something i often struggle with and i'm intrigued as to what advice you can offer us about how we can get better at that yeah i think i mean i would love to know the secret as well um our focus and attention span is reducing significantly because we require more things to keep us captivated in that if you go onto social media now it's super engaging because it's fast it's changing there's like lots of different texts there's lots of sounds and 
to sit down and read a book or read a paper or read an email requires a lot of attention now. And the only way that you can enhance that is by trying to eliminate as many distractions around you as possible. And so that means putting your phone on airplane mode, closing all non-essential tabs, making sure that you're in an environment that is conducive to working. So you're not like sitting on the sofa or um, in a space that doesn't feel like working for you. Other things that can be helpful is having cues that tell you and your mind that you're going into a deep work mode. And for me, that's like making sure that I've got a hot drink and I've got a work playlist. So every time I put that playlist on, I know I'm in deep deep work. I also like using like focus timers for up to 50 minutes and then having a 10 minute break in between because we know that, you know, you cannot sustain good quality attention for two hours, but we beat ourselves up about it if we don't. And um, so try to fo- try to work in those focused blocks and that can enhance the quality of the work that you're doing because we often confuse productivity and efficiency. So what we want to do is we want to be efficient in our work because we can be productive, but not efficient. So, I mean, they're fascinating uh, hints to adopt. I'm interested as well, though, that I often notice that when I do deep work where I really focus and I've read around the glucose that it requires your brain to be able to think about thinking in many ways, I'll often reach for like a, a sugary drink afterwards. I noticed. So have you got any sort of nutritional advice about how we can structure our lives to be able to do that deeper work for longer? Yeah, absolutely. Um, So glucose or carbohydrates are our main source of fuel. So our body's main preferred source of fuel and also our brain. Um, So we require to, to focus. But Obviously, there's different types of carbohydrates. We have more simple carbohydrates, which include sugars, and then complex carbohydrates, which are things like fiber and starches. And although we could all do with reducing the amount of free sugars in our diet, so the sugars that we get from like uh, cakes and sweets and things like that, complex carbohydrates are really good for you when it comes to health. And when it comes to focusing and maintaining those stable glucose levels, having foods like whole grains and pulses like chickpeas and beans and wholemeal pastas and breads are all really good sources and they'll help stabilize those blood sugar levels so you're not getting dips and troughs in um, those levels which kind of leave us feeling a little bit hungry or feeling like we're losing concentration because if our body is fueled appropriately, that's one less thing for our, bo- our brain to think about. And so it's able to focus on the work. But if your tummy is grumbling or your blood sugar levels are low, your body's going to be telling you, hey, we need to get a snack. So you need to stop reading that. There are just some tips to, to bear in mind. A couple of other things to help stabilize blood sugars would be adding protein and fats to your meal. So not just having carbs on their own, but it might be if you are having, say, a slice of wholemeal toast, you add some peanut butter, um, which has healthy fats and protein in it. Or if you're making yourself like some lunch, you could have like brown rice, chicken and veggies, for example, um, or a wholemeal wrap adding some like tuna um, and chickpeas and some veggies. And so they're just some kind of ways that you can have a healthy balanced meal that will stabilize your blood sugar and keep you fueled for whatever you're doing. Um, Things like caffeine can also be really helpful if you use it wisely, um, because we know that it can enhance concentration and focus. 
but up to a limit um, because some people are quite caffeine sensitive and then they can get really anxious if they have too much in the day. So it's, it's really quite individual. So tell us more about that, if you will, Hazel, because I, I know that you've spoken a lot on Instagram and in, and in your brilliant books around our caffeine addiction in many ways. Tell us like where that sweet spot is that you believe it can help and then where it can go over the top. Caffeine is probably one of the most well-researched drugs in sports performance. It can massively enhance not just mental performance, but also kind of physical performance, um, which is why you get it in all pre-workouts and you can get it in kind of energy drinks as well. And the evidence for that is really strong. But the recommended amount that we have per day or the limit that we should have is 400 milligrams. And you can get about 200 milligrams in any sports drink or any pre-workout. So it's pretty easy to knock that up and go above that. And beyond those levels, people tend to feel irritable. They lose concentration. They lose focus. You can get gut issues as a result of it. And also it will affect your sleep. So the half time of caffeine, which is the time it takes to metabolize half of it, is very variable from person to person because it's it, it's based on our genetics. And for some people, it can be up to 10 hours. And so that caffeine that you're having at midday could be disrupting your sleep. And so as a kind of rule of thumb, try to have decaf after midday, but before then, really maximize your use of caffeine because it can really enhance the work that you do and it will still kick in at 3 p.m so don't don't worry if you feel like you're lagging it's not caffeine it's probably your nutrition that you need to focus on then it's really interesting because i would never have thought that too much coffee reduces the ability to focus and concentrate i mean i i know that i'm a coffee addict but i think about my life right hazel it's either long days where I'm recording four or five podcast episodes, long days where I'm traveling or days with lots of um, sort of little injections of excitement where I'm doing live TV. So I actually probably self-medicate with coffee. If I've got a long journey, I'll drink it. If I'm doing a podcast, yeah. a bunch of them, I'll probably have a coffee before each record, maybe three or four in a day. And certainly on a day of live telly, man, I can do five or six coffees. And if there are people listening to this thinking, yeah, that rings a bell. What should I or what could I be doing to kind of break this cycle that I think I'm stuck in? I would um, I would question whether you really need it, whether the caffeine's actually effective at that point, um, because I was definitely an eight cup a day person when I was in medical school. And I don't really feel like it actually was effective up to a certain point and it was probably just causing issues down the line. What I would say is when you are feeling like you need caffeine later in the day kind of check in with yourself and see have I um is it because I'm hungry have I eaten a balanced meal today is that what I need do I need a glass of water instead do I need to go outside do I need to do some breath work because all those things can also give you energy breath work and a cup of coffee can actually be quite similar if you do it correctly and so there are other things that can help you collect yourself and get you energy that don't require having a cup of coffee. And again, similar to the snacking story that you told us, sometimes it's just habitual when we feel like we're a little bit stressed or we're losing energy because it's 5 p.m. in the day. It's easy to think that co coffee is going to be the answer and it's not always the answer. And is there a hard stop in your mind when like you just don't drink coffee after this time? 
I tend to recommend not after midday, but I would be lying if I said that I stuck to that every time. Come on, we're all flawed. We can all sit here and and say. And actually, there's a. I think there's a just worth picking up on that briefly. Like there'll be people listening to this, and sometimes they'll feel like they're either failures or they're inferior because they hear all this amazing advice and feel they they get it wrong all the time. Like, yeah. let's be clear, right, Hazel? You don't get it right 24 hours a day, okay? No, no. And I really try to talk about that on my Instagram. Um, when it comes to like movement and nutrition and things like that, I think we always talk about. And I, I'm guilty of it. I talk about what's optimal for human performance, but what's better than optimal is what you can consistently do, what's enjoyable and what's sustainable. And they're more important than what you're doing if like then reaching for optimal, because we know that eight hours of sleep per night in a dark room with no noise is optimal. We know that having three meals a day on a Mediterranean style diet and no caffeine and no alcohol is optimal. But if you do all of those things and it's affecting your mental health or it means you can't live your life and your relationships are breaking down and your social life's breaking down, then that's not healthy. Have you got your whoop band on at the moment? Yes, always. <laughs> right. Let's have a truth off on the whoop bands then. How many hours sleep did you get last night? I got seven hours, 55 minutes of sleep and three hours were, were restorative. Okay, and what does what does that proof. make your recovery? I actually only had yellow recovery, but I think that's because I did a lot of activity yesterday, and I probably didn't recover very well. So funny because when you're like, I only had yellow recovery. For me, well, I get Is a yellow red? recovery. Then I'm like, woo! <laughs> so for people that are listening to this conversation, um, <laughs> if you've got. The way that WHOOP works is it doesn't just tell you what you've done. It tells you what you need to do by um, using some different measurements to give you a recovery score. So mine's 45% my recovery score. What's yours today? Uh, 55. And what's your HRV? Quite low today, 53. But it's very variable from person to person, so we shouldn't yeah, compare. <laughs> true. My HRV is 35. My recovery is 45%. Would you mind just... Sh- for those listening that are thinking, what are they talking about? Would you mind sharing what HRV is? Because it's a it's a sort of crucial way of measuring people on WHOOP, isn't it? Yeah, so HRV is heart rate variability, and it's different to your resting heart rate, which WHOOP also take into account when they calculate your recovery scores. Um, and your recovery score is based on HRV, um, so heart rate variability, resting heart rate, and also the strain that you did the day before. So how much kind of uh, cardiovascular strain you put your body under and then it, and how much sleep you got. And then it calculates this recovery score that you get the next day. And it's green, yellow, and then red is not very good. And so heart rate variability is basically the differences in um, uh, between each heartbeat. And so the higher the number, the better. Um, which is different to resting heart rate. So in, when it comes to health, we want low resting heart rate because that means that we're working um, efficiently. But we want high HRV or heart rate variability because that means our body is better able to switch between those parasympathetic and sympathetic nervous systems. So it's more adaptable. And so what people will see is as their recovery increases, the heart rate variability will increase. Um so it's just another metric of recovery. And I know we shouldn't compare, but, you know, on a good day, I, mine's about 55. And I, one of my best friends is a professional footballer and he wears a whoop band. I said to him, what's your HRV? He said, mm, it's quite low today, 147. <laughs> 
I'm yeah, like, okay. no, I know it's the same with loads of my friends where they'll be in the hundreds all the time and and they'll still get red recovery. Whereas I think my highest will have, would be like maybe eighty. Um, so it, it is very variable and it depends on who you are. But the best thing, the reason why it's so useful is so you know what what your trends are um and so it's a really good snapshot for you to get better learnings for your body and one of the things i love about that whoop have just also included is a menstrual cycle tracker so for women who use whoop when it's calculating your recovery it also takes into account where you are in your menstrual cycle because your hormones also um, influence your recovery i think that's fantastic and you've done a lot of work recently haven't you about the the differences between men and women when it comes to nutrition and the way that we should operate what what are the biggest learnings that you've that you've discovered that you'd like to share with our audience the biggest reason why i wrote the book the female factor is because historically most of the medical research we have is based on a 70 kilo male body and then we just have extrapolated it to make the assumption that women are just smaller men and that you know everything is the same and the reason that women have been excluded from clinical trials for years is because we have fluctuating hormones, which can be a nuisance for researchers because then they have to account for them. Um, there's also the risk of pregnancy. And so for ethical reasons, they've excluded women. And women tend to be primary caregivers, not all the time now, but previously. And so getting them recruited into trials was a bit more tricky. And so basically for years and years, we've just never included women. And... While that's changing, it only started to change about 10 years ago. And by the time research happens to that changing how we practice in health and healthcare, it takes many years. And so a lot of the advice that we use, a lot of the treatment protocols and, and diagnostic tests are still based on men. And that's not just when it comes to medicine, but also when it comes to the advice that we give out about nutrition, about movement, about sleep, about differences in mood. And so I wrote the book to try really untangle that and give really tangible advice for women how they should be eating across their menstrual cycle or when they're going through the menopause and um, how we're stronger at certain parts of our cycle how our mood's better and um, why we have mood changes at certain points and just really try to understand these things because I think for women it can often feel like it's part and parcel of being a woman you have to accept that sometimes you will feel really crappy when actually I think it's really empowering to understand these things and make changes with your nutrition and sleep and looking after your mental health and offsetting those terrible symptoms that we hear about. I also think it's empowering for partners and husbands of, of women to understand as well isn't it so the the conversation about mood swings and your changes in moods through your menstrual cycle. What is the scientific reason for that? Because even my own wife says, I don't know why I feel like this, but I do. Yeah. So most women will report, you know, just in that premenstrual phase, so PMS, that they will get mood changes. And that can be like mood swings, feeling tearful, irritable. Um, there's many, many symptoms. Actually, there's up to 150 different PMS symptoms that women report. And 90% of women do experience them. So they're a very real thing. 
but we don't really understand why because if you take a woman who has PMS and a woman who doesn't have PMS or report mood changes they have the same levels of hormones so it's not the level of hormones but it seems to be that the women who experience it are more sensitive to that drop in hormones that occurs just when you're going into menstruation and we're trying to really understand the reasons why we also know at that part of the cycle that um, there's a change to your stress response, so how we respond to stress. Um, and that's based on like the hormones in your body, like adrenaline and cortisol, and how they link up with estrogen and progesterone. So it's kind of the same narrative in that we definitely need more research and only new research is coming out now. But it's a very real thing. And there are things that women can do that can offset this to a degree. And there's lots of nutrition strategies and um, like increasing magnesium intake in that part of the cycle. We're taking magnesium supplements, calcium and vitamin D supplements have been shown to be really effective as well. Sleep is something that you should really prioritize during that time. But one study that was really interesting, and I think this will be interesting for people um, who are partners, is that the biggest predictor of mood changes is not hormones when it comes to PMS, it's social support and the relationships that you're in. So actually, if women who feel supported in their relationships are less likely to experience PMS symptoms. So if your partner is, you know, going through that, just make sure she feels really supported, maybe take the bins out and just and <laughs> offer to cook. And um, that will that will help her feel a bit more supported and a bit more able to cope with these kind of swings in hormones. So can you give us like some advice then on beyond the practical stuff that you just said there about taking the bins and cooking the tea? What other elements can we do to support women going through this based on this recent research that you've been involved in hazel having an open dialogue so feeling comfortable enough to talk about it and i still think that talking about menstrual health especially you know even me speaking to women can sometimes feel very confronting for women so me speaking to a group of men can be, feel very confronting and i think you know every relationship's different but some men just don't really want to know about that and sometimes women don't want to share but you can always just kind of open up the dialogue by if you're having a difficult time just let me know and ask them what can i do to support you during this time that will be kind of the best piece of advice and when it comes to practical things in that week before the period just really hone in on all those things that the, those core f fundamental pillars getting the right nutrition avoiding alcohol because that can really really influence anxiety and menstrual symptoms around that time optimizing sleep in that part of the cycle sleep tends to be worse because our temperature is slightly higher and um, movement has been shown to help ease pms symptoms um, and symptoms of anxiety and depression so while women tend to not feel like moving around that time encouraging gentle movement whether it's yoga or going for walks or if they feel up for it doing a strength session and that they would kind of be my primary pieces of advice when it comes to that. Brilliant. And what about women who suffer with quite a lot of pain around this time? Is there something nutritionally that we should be looking to do at that point? Yeah. Um, so there are, there is good advice when it comes to PMS. And the best thing is, again, following a Mediterranean style diet, which is very colorful, full of whole grains, oily fish, those kind of foods, because that's anti-inflammatory and can help dampen that 
inflammatory response. And menstruation in and of itself is an inflammatory response. So we want to dampen that down and that will reduce cramping and pain around that time. But also, um, like I mentioned, including, including magnesium supplements can be helpful and calcium rich foods or including calcium supplements. Um, vitamin D is really important. In the UK and Ireland, we get no vitamin D during um, autumn and winter. So definitely supplement with that daily. And that is for men and women should be doing that anyway. And other things like soya products. So soya foods are really interesting because they have a type of plant uh, chemical called phytoestrogens, which basically translates to plant estrogen. And they're not the same as estrogen, but they mimic it in the body in, in that they, they bond to the same receptors. And research shows that they that may help ease PMS symptoms. So you can find soya in soy milk and soy yogurts, but also tofu um, and other products that use it like tempeh. And so that's just kind of some nutritional tips for including it there. It's really interesting because women tend to report more cravings during that time. And what we see is also their metabolism. So the amount of energy they burn at rest increases as well. So you will feel more hungry. And the best thing to do then is similar to what we were talking about when it comes to focus and um, our energy dips, include lots of whole grains and fibrous foods and try not to rely on caffeine and sugar to get you through. Is this advice for what you're describing here, Hazel? Is it replicable for women going through the menopause? It's slightly different. Um, and for in the book, in the nutrition chapter, I talk you through all the way from the menstrual cycle to the menopause. So when it comes to the menopause, because we lose estrogen, estrogen is so important for brain health, heart health, bone health. It basically, we have receptors all over our body for estrogen. And so if we lose that, we lose all the health promoting benefits of it. And so after the menopause, we see this huge increase in heart disease, increase in osteoporosis, increase in dementia. And in order to kind of help reduce those risks, nutrition is absolutely key. And so you want to be focusing on foods that are heart healthy and foods that support brain health and foods that support bone health. But also there's some evidence that, you know, not all women will experience really terrible menopausal symptoms like hot flushes. But for women who do, there are some nutritional strategies, again, including soy-based foods because they mimic estrogen to a degree, not having spicy uh, or fatty foods because that will increase um, hot flashes and just ensuring that you're having like a really well-rounded Mediterranean style diet. And I, you know, that, that type of diet comes up time and time again, but regardless of whether you're a man or a woman or whatever age group, if you're focusing your diet around that, you're 80% of the way there and then the rest of it's just tweaking. And can I ask you from a male perspective as well? I mean, we have a lot of men that listen to this podcast. We have a lot of young men listening to this podcast and they probably think life's easy because they can eat what they want. They go to the gym once a week and the six pack is great and the guns are looking nice. And mm -hmm. when you get to the age of myself and Damien, whatever we do, it seems that, you know, getting rid of belly fat and things is, is a challenge. So Amazing advice for women who are either approaching the menopause, going through the menopause. What about as men like Damien and I hit their 40s? What should we as older guys be looking to do? Yeah, well, 
with age, your metabolism will slow down, unfortunately. And so that means that, you know, your energy needs might be a little bit lower, so less calorie needs. But at that point in time, you want to start thinking about your heart health, your brain health, your long-term health. And I feel like a lot of people think that that's something they need to think about when they're 75, when really we should be thinking about it when we're 20. In fact, I think over 50% of people or 60% of people over the age of 35 in the UK, don't quote me on that stat, but I'm pretty sure I'm right, have high blood cholesterol levels. And they don't know it because you wouldn't have any symptoms if you've got high cholesterol levels. But that is a huge risk factor for heart disease and stroke in, in kind of in the future. So my message is, regardless of whether you're in your 30s or your 40s, you need to be thinking about kind of the foods that are going to support your heart and your brain for long-term health. And it's not good enough to just start when you get, um, you know, you go to the doctor and they're like, your blood pressure's high, you, your cholesterol's high, because at that point, it's not too late, but it's harder to reverse. But if you never get there, then it's never going to be an issue. And so what's good for your heart is good for your brain. And again, that's going to be your really colorful fruits and vegetables, your whole grains, your lean sources of protein, your olive oil. I think for, for a lot of active men who go to the gym, their priority are their macronutrients. So getting enough protein, having kind of X amount of carbs and getting small amounts of fat. And they're never thinking about their micronutrients. They're not thinking about their vitamins and minerals. They're not probably not hitting their five a day. And so I would start thinking about that. I would start getting more colorful fruits and vegetables into your diet, get more plant-based foods in there. Think, think about your foods beyond protein because protein's important, but so is everything else. Mm. You see, I'm slipping into this. So a good example, I'll tell you about today, right? I've not eaten yet today because I don't really, I've never really liked breakfast, but I've been to the gym and I've done a weight session and I've had a protein shake. And my plan after this is a ham and cheese omelette and then I will probably have dinner with the kids maybe some like I'll try and eat vegetables and whole wheat pasta and stuff this evening but I until then you know the only real thing that's passed my lips is water coffee and and some eggs and and, and a protein shake what do you think when I say that I think that it's very unlikely that you're gonna get five portions of fruit and veg in your dinner um and also we need to think about what you're getting across the day and not just in your kind of your main meal in the nighttime. Um, so you could make really simple tweaks. If you really don't want to consume food in the morning, you could add a greens shake, like a greens powder, like athletic greens or something similar. I am always food first and supplement second. But if sometimes I'm working with people who are just adamant, I'm not going to eat in the morning. And so we have to sometimes lean into convenience like this kind of example. But what you could do instead is also when you're making your protein shake, you could just whack it into a Nutribullet with a handful of spinach and some frozen berries. And that's not really adding in like a huge amount of food. So you're not going to feel full or really satiated, but you're going to get in at least two portions of fruit and veg and more fiber. Yeah. Um, and which are what really does important. that do for us, the, the fruit and veg? So fruit and veg is, we know that beyond five portions of fruit and veg today has been linked to longer longevity. And actually a recent study, well, about 2018 came out to say actually 10 portions is what we should be aiming for a day. Ten. But 10. That's just not practical for most people um, unless you're vegan. And so 
my advice is, you know, five plus if you can. Um, but what's more important is that you're getting a variety of different fruits and vegetables because all the different colors, all the different types of fruits and veg and all the different plant-based foods include a different spectrum of nutrients. And that's where we get our antioxidants because you're not getting them from um, your protein sources. You're getting your colorful kind of um, water-based vitamins. You're getting your vitamins and minerals from those um, fruits and vegetables they're also a great source of fiber and what we're starting to learn now is we know already that in the uk we consume maybe about half of the amount of fiber we should and i think people when they think about fiber i think it's just for having regular bowel motions and it does that but that's not the only thing it does it really helps support our gut microbiome so all those gut bugs that we have which not only supports our gut health that has far-reaching effects to our brain health our immune system our heart health and so it's in your best interest to be getting enough fiber and enough colorful fruits and veg into your diet but going back to your kind of daily example meal if it's convenient for you to ham have a ham and cheese omelette i still think that's like a healthy option but what i would say is can you add a side of greens could you add could you fold in some spinach could you add some tender stem broccoli on the side or slice in some tomatoes you can you can do it um, <laughs> it's happening now I, I think always just look down at your plate and be like do i have any fruit and veg on my plate and if you don't then go find some and like sometimes it doesn't you know it doesn't have to make sense yesterday my boyfriend was laughing at me but i had scrambled eggs and a bagel and then I had watermelon on my plate and he thought that was extremely <laughs> weird but I knew I had no veg and I wanted to get in a, a, some fruit and veg because I wasn't I was never going to hit what I needed across the day one of our rules in our house is um is multicolored plates of food is there a, is yeah. there truth in the fact that all the colors all the vitamins and minerals yeah so I mean you you can still hit all the different fruits and vegetables or different colors and and it's not to say that that will make your diet optimal, but it's a good way to start because all those different colors are there because of the different antioxidants that are in them, the different types of plant chemicals. And, you know, we know that really like dark colored, like uh, fruits and vegetables, like aubergines and blueberries and blackberries are um, really good for your brain health, for example. Um, leafy greens as well and kind of green colored foods tend to be rich in vitamin K, which is also really important for your brain health, but also your bone health. And so all these different colored uh, fruits and veg have their own kind of specific properties that they help benefit us. You know, like we say, eat carrots for your eyes. It's not because of carrots, it's because of the different nutrients in it, but you can find that in butternut squash as well. So think about variety and if you're the type of person that's consistently having the same vegetables each day next week pick up a new vegetable when you go to the supermarket even if it's just one new vegetable and if you don't know how to cook it go onto youtube and i'm sure there'll be some kind of video to show you hazel jake and i recently met a guy who's got a book out next year around the dangers of processed food and he used this great line where he said that we all live in a swamp in terms of processed food and the damage it's doing to us and that we often try and find sort of quick fixes to lift ourselves out of the swamp and i'm interested in asking you some of like the kind of hacks that have crept into popular culture and get your view on them so can i ask you around like the advice that people have around drinking eight glasses of water a day to be helpful what's your view on that is that a fact or or is it a myth 
It's really funny because we've all heard this um, recommendation and even if you read like health pamphlets or like doctor pamphlets, it will say eat, drink eight glasses of water a day. But it's, there's no evidence to say that that's optimal. Like there's, it's not based on any research studies. It's just a random recommendation. It's not a bad recommendation because I think for most people that's bad enough. But for some people it's not enough. And for some people it could be too much, like for very small people, because it's based on our body weight in terms of our hydration needs. Um, but practically speaking, we're not all weighing ourselves and figuring out how much water we need per day. So I would say if you can aim for that, that's a kind of a good aim. But six to eight is probably a good kind of um, middle of the road figure. And also things like coffee and tea, although not optimal, also contribute towards your fluid intake. Great. So another one then. What about avoiding sugars completely? Yeah, I'm not a big believer in this. I think if you restrict anything from your diet, that is the biggest indicator of someone binging. And then you fall into that binge restrict cycle. Also there's, well, I said earlier in the podcast, we should in general try to reduce the amount of free sugars in our diet. And when I say free sugars, I mean sugars that are added to the food by the cooker, the consumer. So that would be things like cakes or jams and a table sugar and things like that. It doesn't include sugars in milk or fruit. So free sugars we should reduce because we eat lo lots of it. But there's no evidence to say that a small amount of it is going to be detrimental to your health. And if a small amount of it is going to add pleasure and satisfaction and allow you to have a balanced diet, then I think it's a healthier approach than cutting it out completely. It's also almost impossible to avoid sugar. And then the, the last myth I'm interested in is, or fact or fiction, is intermittent fasting will help me lose weight. Uh, no, that's just a myth. While you can lose weight whilst doing fasting, it's basically down to a calorie deficit. And um, yeah, there's no research to say that it's any better than a standard diet where you eat and don't fast and still have the same amount of calories. So when we compare them like for like, there's no difference in terms of weight loss. Uh, can I just ask you about that quickly? Because I used an app for a, for a while about um, fasting. And it used to show me the different stages my body's going into as I wasn't eating. And at one point I managed to do a 24 hour fast. And I know they can be quite common or quite popular anyway. A, would you ever recommend that for people? Or a kind of what they call a water fast where they drink but don't eat. But also the app was telling me things that my body was doing. Like it spoke about atrophy, right? Where it said you're now actively burning fat cells in your body. Like, was that all just nonsense? Because I think we have to be very careful on this subject, don't we? You know, I have a nine-year-old daughter who already looks in the mirror and talks about her weight and things and you know i want to be really careful the way we talk about this yeah i think intermittent fasting um especially beyond 12 hours um or beyond 15 hours i'll just be a bit more flexible with it can be actually quite detrimental for people um i definitely don't recommend water fasts and i know that some people do them up to five days which can be really dangerous the reasons i don't recommend it is because it reduces your likelihood of getting enough nutrients and calories in the day it does increase based on the research your risk of disordered eating and a poor relationship with food and also for um, especially women, it can disrupt your hormones, so it can disrupt your menstrual cycles. It can do the same to men, so it can affect your, your testosterone levels if you're doing long periods of fasting. Because we need enough energy available to do all of the processes in our body, not just breathing and our heart pumping, but also our hormones and reproducing. And so 
I don't think the evidence is there to say extended fasts are beneficial for human health. Most of the studies are done on mice. We know that some, uh, there's like fasting coming out. Again, when I say fasting, I'm talking more about time-restricted feeding in this context, which means having smaller eating windows around your sleeping patterns. That area of research is quite interesting, but it's not extreme. It's it's fasting for 12 to 15 hours, not fasting for 24 to five days. It's something that I don't ever recommend. And um, even when it comes to fasted training in the morning, I know that that's really popular amongst people. There's no benefits to say it's going to enhance performance and actually it can be detrimental to performance. I'm always asked about fasting and context matters. And so it depends what people are doing it for. And I'm not completely against it, but I'm not for it for everyone. So before we hit our quick fire questions to wrap up what's been a fascinating conversation with all those great bits of advice about things that we, we we shouldn't be doing how would you like to leave it with people for what we should do you know in terms of balance and just the sort of sensible decisions how you'd like people to view their day through a nutritional lens I would say um for me it's about focusing on getting your three balanced meals per day and I think that's really unsexy advice because it's what we've been told from when we were in school but actually that's the biggest predictor of being able to get the nutrients that you have and enough calories and not over consuming or binging in the nighttime by skipping meals. I think if you're the type of person who doesn't like to have breakfast that's fine but just make sure that you're getting your two well-rounded meals and maybe another snack in the day. The other thing which I kind of banged on around the fiber conversation is increase the amount of plant-based foods in your diet, not just fruits and vegetables, but plant-based foods. So that's anything from like whole grain cereals, breads and pastas, beans and pulses, because they all have, they're really rich in fiber. They also are rich in antioxidants. And we know that people who consume up to 30 different plant-based foods per week have the best gut microbiomes and have the healthiest outcomes. And so that may sound like a huge amount, like I'll never get to 30 in a week, but it also includes things like herbs and spices, tinned tomatoes, things that you're doing anyway that you're probably not aware of, but it can be a good kind of challenge to start ticking them off and seeing how you're getting on in a week and maybe doing a little audit and then improving on that. And my third one would be, although I did say that, you know, a lot of gym-based people focus on just getting enough protein. Most everyday people kind of gen pop don't get enough protein or they don't prioritize that at regular intervals across the day. They'll just kind of have it at a big, you know, in a big meal in the nighttime. So try to have reg regular boluses of protein throughout the day, lean sources. And the reason that's important is not just for kind of building strong muscles. It's also really important for our bones. 50% of our bones are made of protein but also our immune health and our hormonal health as well. So make sure you're getting your protein in. And that would be kind of my three top tips. I love them. I love the idea of almost gamifying and coming up with a, trying to hit a target because that, that appeals to me. Yeah. Yeah. And I've definitely been guilty in the beginning to try to think of the most exciting things to do. And as I've gone along, I've just simplified, simplified, reduced, and also thinking about what's the most practical thing. And it's always those low hanging fruit. It's never the supplements or the 
kind of quick fixes, that's never going to work. And sometimes there's things that can be the cherry on top of the cake. But if we can get the cake right, then we're doing quite well. I I love it. I feel like going back to your initial answer about the origins of this drive to go and explore this area and the, the sad story about your father, I just think it's really quite moving to hear this, like this really practical advice, you know, as a father myself, it's, uh, yeah, it's really powerful. So thank you. Thank you for sharing it and making it so, so clear and, and candid for us. And we always finish our conversations with um, a few quick fire questions. The first of which, and you can take this either from a nutritional perspective or just from a, a life perspective, the three non-negotiables that you and the people around you need to buy into? Um, three non-negotiables. Um, phone-free hour in the morning, which I've adopted and lost and readopted. That's really important for me, for my mental health. Daily movement. And m- when I say movement, I don't just mean structured exercise. It can be any form of movement. So dancing or going for a walk or playing golf or tennis, anything. And the third non-negotiable is sleep. And I guess I've not included nutrition in that, but for me, sleep is probably the lowest hanging fruit that has the biggest impact on how I feel. I know that if I can consistently get seven to eight hours of sleep, then I'm always doing my body a service and I'm doing my future health a service. If there was one piece of advice that you could give to a teenage Hazel just starting out, what would that be? I think when it comes to your health, it's very easy, especially if you are a girl, to think that you need to make yourself smaller, but that's not true. And you should focus on fueling yourself for all the things that you love and uh, being able to kind of go to school, go to studies, go out and enjoy yourself. That would be the message I'd tell my, my younger self. Lovely. What is your biggest strength? What is your greatest weakness? Biggest strength is I'm very driven and very motivated. So if I get an idea in my head, I will absolutely follow it through to the end, even to my detriment. Um, I think my biggest weakness is I am my biggest critic and I often struggle with doubt and imposter syndrome and sometimes need to give myself a bit of a shake and a talking to. We recently interviewed a guest that had a great line that he said, how you do anything is how you do everything. What's the one thing that you do that would give us a clue into the person you are? I think my uh, my kind of mantra around daily movement, and that gives a good idea of how I, I kind of approach health and my life, because I feel like it's something that is massively underestimated when it comes to our mental health and for me I I was diagnosed with anxiety early in my 20s and it's one of the things that I feel like if I do it I'm ticking off something on my list for my health and it makes me feel like I'm I'm better able to kind of tackle challenges I feel more productive I feel more capable and finally this is the kind of last message I guess for the uh, for the people that are listening to this your one golden rule for them to live a high performance life One golden rule is don't skimp on sleep. When it comes to high pressure deadlines, it's very easy to think that we need to not sleep and work harder when actually most of the kind of things, our thoughts and our memories are consolidated when we sleep. So you're only going to remember those things if you're getting adequate sleep and you're only going to perform at your best if you're sleeping. So just work hard, but sleep harder. 
Thanks, Hazel. That's been a real privilege. Thank you. I've loved that. Thank you. Damien. Jake. Let's do a, a wrap-up of that episode slightly differently, okay? What will you do differently going forwards after hearing Hazel talk? Well, that question I asked her around being in the swamp when we recently met um, the author a few weeks ago who used that phrase, it really sort of made me become a lot more self-aware of like processed food around us and how we do it. I think anything on the back of this, it needs to be quite simple, isn't it? So I think just that sleep hygiene I'll be a lot more focused on it. You know, I've, I've got back into the habit of having my phone by the bed at night and things like that, and I'm going to just take that out and start focusing on trying to get a better quality eight hours. What will you do? Well, I actually, I've just recently started using the alarm on my whoop band, right? So it just gives you, it buzzes on your wrist, which is a much nicer way of waking up than ringing your ears at, you know, six o'clock in the morning. So that's, that's something that I've changed just recently, taking the phone out of the room. I think for me... It is this understanding that we're kind of we have this desire to overcomplicate things, which then makes us think that we've really thought deeply about it. Therefore, we must be doing the right thing. Do you know what I mean? Whereas actually, yeah, yeah. the simplest stuff, like you know, eating three balanced meals a day and eating as much fruit and veg as you can, drinking lots of water, and going to bed at a decent time, is is a is the best advice really. And I think that what we have to do is sort of take a look at. You know, we've spoken with Ryan Holiday on this podcast, right, that discipline is destiny. And I think that's the key thing from my perspective is that having the discipline to eat well, having the discipline to go to bed on time, loving yourself enough to not just go and eat some crap and actually cook a proper meal. You remember when Johnny Wilkinson told us that, you know, what he eats is the single most important thing in his life because he says your body is constantly regenerating. It's not your yeah. hair or your skin or your eyes that you're born with. It's all new. It's all regenerated during your life. So if you're eating crap all the time, you're regenerating your whole body from from processed foods and from nonsense and from stuff that shouldn't be in your body. And I think that's a really good way of looking at it. It's like, do I want my body to be made up of that thing that's on my plate right now? No. Well, I, I, again, I think what I found reassuring on this was when... Um, a lot of Hazel's advice related to what Salia Mahmood Ahmed had told us when we met her. And I, I came home and told that phrase to my wife at the time, what Salia had said about like whatever you present should be like a hug on a plate, that it should be something that is about expressing how you feel about your family. Like you say, it's got to be healthy and nutritious. And I think what Hazel was telling us was entirely consistent with that. It was don't deny anything, include stuff, but make sure that there's variety and that it's the colours on the plate rather than just eating a particular type of food is really important. So I think a lot of this stuff, you know, like even when she said there about the three meals a day, there's no fads, there's no sort of catchy name to this sort of stuff you know like a, a like certain types of diets sometimes go down the route of having a name and a gimmick to it it was all common sense wasn't it yeah you're totally right um and that's where that's where we should leave this with common sense i think just making sure that we love ourselves enough to uh to put the food in our body that our body deserves because if we don't look after our health what is there what is left if you think about it it's absolutely the foundation of everything take all the important things in your life your family and your job, and your friendships, and your house, and your nice holidays. Well, all of those disappear if you lose your health. It all goes. Thanks, Damo. Thanks, mate. Loved it. 
Well, huge thanks to Dr. Hazel Wallace for joining us on today's podcast. Of course, also huge thanks to Whoop. Don't forget, if you want 20% off Whoop, the amazing wearable tech brand that me and the rest of the team use here on High Performance, then go to join.whoop.com forward slash HPP. But look, huge thanks to you for growing and sharing this podcast among your community. Please continue to spread the learnings you're taking from the series. Thanks to the whole team for their hard work. But remember, there is no secret. It is all there for you. So chase world-class basics. Don't get high on your own supply. Remain humble, curious, and empathetic. And we'll see you soon.